All right, hey, so we are starting a podcast, the Canyon Chasers podcast, and uh, we're, we're going to bring in Alex and May. Alex works for Yamaha Champ School. May is the better half of Alex and also a very accomplished writer on her own. Um, and welcome to the hallowed halls of, of Canyon Chasers. I know for a lot of people when they walk in here, it's, it's an emotional experience. It's like, you get kind of like teared up. Is that? Well, you can smell Ducati. <laughs> you can smell Ducati. <laughs> yeah. I, and KTM. So we need to come up with a name for this podcast, right? Like Ooh. I had a couple ideas. I was thinking like maybe in the clutch and you had a couple ideas. I don't remember them. I think you were saying uh, between two bikes. Between two bikes. Kind of like between two ferns. <laughs> yes. But I think we should uh, put it out to our listeners um, if they have a better idea for the name of the podcast, because I think Canyon Chasers, the podcast, is is a little weak, even wah, though it does wah. work for SEO, right? Like search engine optimization. Yeah. So since it's the, um, it is the beginning podcast, the very first episode, we're going to talk about beginner riders. So why don't we start off, why don't we talk, like introduce yourself so they probably all know me, um, but they don't know you and we can uh, like, where do, how did you get started riding? Sure, uh, so my name's Alex. Uh, I work for the Yamaha Champions Riding School. I'm the ChampU program manager. So if you guys have heard of ChampU, that's kind of my baby. Um, got started riding so after, actually after I got out of the army. Uh, so I got out in 2016, went, finished my undergrad, got accepted to law school and went, I need a better way to get downtown faster and save money in the process. So I'm going to switch to motorcycles to save money. Worked um, out tremendously. Worked out horribly. It, it never works out, right? Like, no. As soon as you start looking at the price of tires, you're like, oh. Oh, no. <laughs> no, so like, I did I the math, right? So at the point, we had um, a big lifted Jeep and a Ford Raptor, and I was getting like 14 miles a gallon between the two wow. of them. And so both vehicles were on you know, 37-inch tires, and I was going, OK, well, it costs you know, 2200 bucks to change out these tires. It only costs like 350 to change up motorcycle tires. That's cool. You know, I'll get, you know, 45, 50 miles a gallon on the motorcycle. Math worked out really, really well until I got a bike. Yep. At that point, everything kind of just went sideways. Um, actually, that's how my riding career really started was by going sideways. Um, about a week, week and a half after. Yeah, I this is a great story. Like I actually retell your story without ever identifying you that's all creepy. the time. <laughs> no, no, because I think it, it really kind of underpins a lot of the things I was kind of hoping we could talk about today is, is you know, that new rider experience. It is, it's hard. I, I would hate to have to be a new rider again. Oh yeah. So if, if like you wiped my memory and I had to start from the beginning, I don't know if I would be willing to embark on this. There was, there's a lot of challenges the new rider has to face. And your story is like kind of a, a pinnacle example of one of those. Right. And so, you know, to kind of backstop the story a little bit, um, you know, we were looking at some statistics uh, internally over the last couple of weeks. We're preparing to do a presentation for the State Motorcycle Safety Association. And we're finding that, you know, in 2019, the SMSA itself said that, you know, something, something along the lines of 80% of riders that get licensed through a basic rider course never return to the, or they leave the sport within three years. They leave the sport, 80%. 80% of riders that get licensed never leave come the sport. back. Mm -hmm. Yep. And between one and 5% of riders that graduate a basic riding course ever come back for follow on training. So with those statistics in mind, um, with my story, so I, you know, graduated top of the world, you know, the instructors were like, Hey, you're never going to have a problem. You're, you're a great rider already, which they knew from me riding around the parking lot for two days at 18 miles an hour. 
So I go with some friends up the canyon, um, really tight, twisty road, super fun road, beautiful road. And log truck comes into my lane one corner, I uh, get a little spooked. The, like one of the very next corner, um, you know, tight decreasing radius corner, big deal as a new rider, right? Oh yeah. Especially when you're taught accelerate to stabilize the suspension and add more lean angle to correct the problem when you're going wide. So I'm running wide, I do exactly what I'm taught. I add throttle to stabilize my suspension and I add lean angle to try to make the corner. I keep running wider, so I keep adding more throttle thinking this is gonna help. I get to the edge of the roads, hit the gravel, end over end. Bike goes end over end. Um, I remember flying through the air, which was actually kind of a cool feeling at that point, right until I landed and my helmet broke a rock about this size in half. Incredible, yeah. Yeah, I spent about the next six hours going, do I really want to be in this sport? Like I just wrecked a brand new bike to me, just wrecked a helmet that I paid for. You know, I've been in sport less than a week. I should probably just quit now. Thankfully, I didn't quit. Um, the couple I was riding with, they said, hey, you know, you got to go to champ school. I said, what the heck is champ school? Um, you know, they kind of explained it to me. I went, okay, that's interesting. Definitely need more education because what I did, what I was trained to do did not pay off in that situation. It's, it's funny, you, like your story is so similar to mine, only happened at a dramatically different point in our riding career. Because I started to ride in the late 80s. There was no rider education. I was born in the late 80s. Yeah, I was like, yeah, that's how, you know. So like I was inspired by Top Gun, right? I was gonna like ride my ninja next to airplanes. You know, that was gonna be my life goal. And uh, we were um, in Laguna Seca. We went to Laguna Seca for MotoGP and we went out for like a little day ride and we were on like this little road in a downhill decreasing radius corner, right? And I went into it a little too quick and I was like, well, we'll just uh, lean more and, and stay on the gas, downhill decreasing radius. And I come around the corner, there's a Honda Civic coming up the other way. And I almost like center point, like it's a miracle. Yeah. I survived that. And I remember walking out that evening going like, I think I'm done. This isn't fun for me. I'm, I'm not progressing. I'm, it's, it's a horrible experience. And then a champ school instructor who was a friend of mine is like, so Dave, let me talk to you about this thing called trail braking. Like, no, 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 we never touch the front brake right. in a corner, right? But May, how did you, like, where's your beginning? You haven't, we haven't given you much of an opportunity to speak. That's okay, you guys like to talk, it's totally fine. <laughs> so I gotta say before May talks, like I'm gonna cut her off one more time. The reason why we're doing this is like, you were on speakerphone in the pickup truck and we were just chatting while you guys were driving someplace and May pipes up and goes, I feel like I'm listening to a really interesting motorcycle podcast. Yeah. And I was like, well, let's, let's, let's do that. Do so anyway, so yeah, so like we got to give credit to May. It was her idea, but how did you get into riding? Him. So I, like a lot of other people, have a really had, I can't say have, had a really low opinion of motorcycles. Um, my aunt was in a car accident or a motorcycle accident when she was young, shattered her hip, completely changed her life. I swore up and down, never be on the back of a bike ever, whether I'm riding or passenger, never, never, ever, ever. So when he started writing, I was like, okay, fine. You know, that's your thing. You go do it. That's your time. I don't want to be a part of it. Just come home. And he literally pushed me to do it. He's like, you know what? I think you're going to love this. Just do it. Just try it. Do the new writer course. See how you feel. I think you'll really enjoy it. And so I did for him. And, it and you liked me. it? It hooked me. You liked it? Yeah. The freedom. I can't explain what it feels like being on a motorcycle. You just, you're so free. And it's interesting too, like you're former military, I'm former military, and the connection between veterans getting onto motorcycles is, is significant. A huge percentage of veterans get on motorcycles for 
that kind of, I can, I'm doing something, I'm not just sitting here, I'm moving through the world, but there's this catharsis. Yeah, well really. you can't think of anything else. Yeah. So when you're writing, you have to be so focused on what you're doing and it just, you can't think. So all the experiences you had in the past, everything that bothers you, it's gone in those moments. Because yeah, because you have to be writing. in the moment. You have yeah. to be in the moment or you're not gonna do this sport for very long. Exactly. Yeah. And I know she noticed a difference um, oh, in, yeah. in, in my personality, like once I started writing, right? So, you know, I spent about 10 years in the army, a couple deployments to Afghanistan, infantrymen, sniper sections, you know, that, that whole gamut. Lots of armed hiking. Um, and you know, I came back with some scars, visible and invisible and right, yeah. motorcycling to me, you know, started off as, Hey, let's save some money. Ended up being, wow, like this requires a hundred percent of my focus. Like all those, all those voices, all those demons are suddenly quiet. This is amazing. I'm going to keep doing this. And I know you noticed a difference, yep. um, pretty early on. Uh, and that's one of the things that I really want to get across to other veterans is one of the reasons I'm still in the sport and still trying to progress in the sport is the better you get at the sport, the more focus you put into it, kind of the easier life becomes. Like mm -hmm. you can start setting aside your past and, and, you know, remembering what you need to remember, but kind of getting over some things with no medication, no side effects other than your wallet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's not the cheapest sport. Yeah. No, it's not the cheapest sport, but in terms of, bang for your buck for effectively PTSD treatment, I've never found anything better. Like, yeah. sure, you can go ride horses, you can go fly fishing, go do whatever you want, but none of those other things have that adrenaline rush, right? You don't get that shot of adrenaline that you had the last time you were shot at. You don't get that, oh man, I need to be focused right now or I could die. Because very realistically, that is possible on a motorcycle. Um, so it demands your focus, it demands your attention. It, it does all these things for you that really the last time you had was in combat. So, you know, and, and that's kind of a funny thing too, right? So um, choppers and cafe racers are both a result of veterans. Post-World War II, veterans right. would come home from the military, right? They would pick up the old military WLA Harleys and chop all the crap off of them and just go for rides. That's where the chopper came from. Whereas in Europe, right, where the roads are smaller and tighter and twistier, they would do the same thing, only they would race from cafe to cafe or try to go out and back before a song ended on, on the jukebox, Cafe Racer. Nice. So a lot of modern motorcycles really do kind of come from, you know, and, and military is steeped in tradition just yeah. as badly as motorcycles are. And, and I'm not a fan of tradition. I'm really, you know, but the, you ever do the personality test in the army? They did one for me and it was uh, the end result. Like you get all these, like you like this or you like that or whatever. And it was not impressed with tradition was one of the things they said about me. That the I only not personality test I remember in the army was like, how much can you suffer? Oh yeah, there was a lot of that. Yeah, it's like the pain cave. How deep are you willing to go into the pain yeah. cave, right? Yeah, it's, but no, it's, it's interesting, right? So like the, the military, you know, and tradition and stuff. And we're actually, we run into problems of tradition in the military. Like for whatever reason, my unit decided to do a white glove inspection in the rain in Kandahar. Oh, right on. Yeah. Like, I remember getting smoked for having uh, muddy boots in Bosnia. Yeah. And so we, we see that, you know, the one phrase that got me in trouble often was, you know, excuses, you know, tradition is just an excuse to do the same thing over and over and over again. Right. Officers didn't like that. Uh, neither did senior NCOs for that matter. And turns out neither do motorcyclists no it's it's a it's a huge problem we face as motorcycle i've been thinking about that a lot lately that you know we get caught up in 
you know, well, this is the way it's been. This is the way we're doing it in the seventies, or this is the way I've been doing it for 40 years. Right. And it, tradition doesn't necessarily, when tradition no longer serves a purpose, then why do we hang on to it? Right. If it's a German beer that's been brewed the same way since the 1400s, absolutely. That's a tradition. Oh, I'm with you. you yep. keep. <laughs> right. Whiskey. I'm a whiskey but, man, right? Yep. So, you know, like back in, back in the day, right? Have the kid in the front seat with the airbag. Yeah. yeah. We figured out that was not a good tradition. So, you, so you're younger than I am. I remember laying in the back window of the sedan watching the stars as dad drove. Like right. No, like not even in a seat, laying mm -hmm. in the shelf in the For back For your generation, window. that was kind of the tradition, right? It's great. everybody did that. Yeah. And then science went, hey, that's probably not a good idea. And we kind of advanced beyond that. Well, and there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of pain lot in of that. Pain. And, you know, like motorcycles seals that too, right? Like yeah. there's new concepts that we're introducing all the time that aren't necessarily new, but they go counter to a lot of tradition, which kind of brings me to like one of the things I was wanting to talk about today is some of the challenges new riders face. And, and I think tradition and, you know, these guys say this and these guys say that. How does a new rider navigate that? That's hard yeah. because you're, you're looking at, you know, these, there's so many sources of information, whether it's, you know, your basic rider instructor, um, you know, personalities on YouTube, like there's just so much information. Reddit, right? Oh, Reddit. You go on Reddit, you ask a question, hey, what's two plus two? You'll get 16 answers that say it's 15 for whatever reason. I, I swear on Reddit, if Champ School were to get up there and make a video about how you twist the throttle towards you to go faster, there would be people who would argue about how that is wrong. Would not be surprised. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't, like it's amazing that the concepts that are brought up on Reddit and the arguments yeah. to counter that. And like we're on, we're on Reddit, right? And yeah. our, our purpose there is not advertising. Like we've been reported and I've had to talk to mods about it. Like, no, we're not there to advertise. We're literally just trying to help you guys be safer. And one of the problems we run into, especially on places like Reddit, is you'll get a lot of, you know, armchair physicists. A lot of that. A lot of center of gravity. There's a big obsession with center of gravity. Yeah, and, and one of the, so two things. One, always vet your sources. So if dude's online using handle track day doctor, right? <laughs> is he using his name or is he using a handle? If he's using his name, there's a decent chance that, you know, he cares enough about his own self-respect and self-esteem that he's not going to be giving out trash information. Yeah, because he's putting his own name, his own reputation right. on the line, as opposed to the track day doctor right. or, you know, uh, whatever. Whoever I was else, trying to yeah. think of the, the one from the Thor movie, you know, noob, noob master seven, seven, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, right. <laughs> yeah. So like vet your sources, right? What's the guy's background? You know, what is, if he's giving physics advice, is he a physicist? What's his degree in? When did he get his degree? Where did he get his degree from? You know, if he's got a degree in underwater basket weaving, why is he handing out physics advice? And the other thing is look for the term best practices. So best practices is kind of the antithesis of tradition, right? Best practices is, hey, what are the best in the world doing at this thing? So whether it's motorcycling, whether it's underwater basket weaving, shooting, whatever else, what are the best in the world doing? And are those results they're using measurable? Because yeah. that's how we figure out what they are doing. That's how you figure out who the best in the world are. So like coming from a shooting background, um, you know, competition really drives excellence. So our best practices come from the competition shooting world. Like even as a sniper, we would send guys out to competitions. We would have internal competitions. We, you know, I competed at the international sniper competition in 2015. Snipers from around the world would get together. We would literally turn it into um, a laboratory of what is best practices, what is working best. Because we had, you know, 30 different teams from around the world doing the exact same thing. Who did it best? What were they doing differently? 
that's how you figure out what are best practices because results are measurable. So in motorcycling, the only place we have measurable results is racing. And you might think, oh, well, that's racing, they're different. You know, those tracks are different, they're perfect, and their tires are perfect, and all this. The reality is no. It's, the motorcycle doesn't know, and it doesn't care what pavement it's on. It doesn't know if it's at, you know, Laguna Seca. It doesn't know if it's downtown Salt Lake City. It doesn't know if it's in the canyons here. It doesn't know if it's at Portimao. Right? Well, and, and people need to understand that a racetrack is not a controlled environment. It is a closed course. That yes. is a, a, an important distinction. I think all of us need to pay attention to racing. Yes, we don't ride on the street like you do on a racetrack. You right. don't ride at that pace. There's more variables, but... We do ride on the street like we do on a racetrack in terms of technique. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Not but not the speed. pace. Exactly. Well, and here's the yeah. other thing. So think about it. Who develops these new bikes? It's the racers. So if the racers are the ones who are giving the inputs and that's what the engineering is taking and putting into a brand new bike, what you did last year might not work on that bike because that bike was engineered differently. And that's what the racers are doing. So why not watch the racers? Yeah, it's, right. well, and you know, it's something that Champ School says all the time and, and I stole it, but like when the pace comes up or grip goes down, it's the same thing, right? Because we're at the limits of what we are capable of in that moment. Right. So the techniques that work when the pace is up or when the grip is down are the same things because the consequences are kind of the same, right? Like we have to load the tire before we work the tire. We can't yeah. just like, you know, it's one thing in a parking lot. And I really think a lot of people put too much emphasis on parking lots. Yeah. We're not dying in parking lots. You can get away with a lot of stupid stuff in parking lots. You can grab the brake, whatever. You're in a parking lot. Yep. But now let's go at speed and grab the brake. Now let's go to a low grip environment and grab the brake. Right. There's, you know, parking lot, there's so much mechanical grip, right? There, there really aren't a whole lot of forces. Well, same forces, but different levels of those forces acting on you. You know, you don't have the inertia. You don't have the momentum that you're trying to overcome when you're trying yeah, to Yeah, the centrifugal turn. forces and like there's right. way more than center of gravity. Yeah, Folks, I'm telling you, way more than center of gravity. There's so on. much going on to the point that like to this day, like I've actually called physics departments at various universities around the country. Like I spent two days calling around to different physics departments going, please explain how a motorcycle works. Hey, we don't know. Well, there's a, a we wonderful have a pretty good book. idea, but we don't know. There is a wonderful book, um, and I, I pimp it all the time, Motorcycle Dynamics, written by an Italian guy. I tried guy. reading it. It is so dense. It yeah. is so dense. But it is so fascinating. Am I. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Like, it takes a lot. Like, I have to, like, really, but it's, um, there is a lot we don't know. There's a lot of things about, we don't necessarily, people say, oh, it's the gyroscopic forces. Well, they've built bicycles that eliminate the gyroscopic forces, and it's still stable. There's a lot of things we don't know, but because of data analytics and racing and potentiometers and, and data acquisition, we know an incredible, we know an incredible more, we, we know way more now than we did in the 70s. And right. even not just how the physics work on the back end, because realistically, Mark Marquez, Fabio, none of, none of those guys go down the front straight going, well, you know, if, if force equals mass times acceleration, I need to be, you know, this What's my G. mu on the tire versus right, exactly. the... Yeah. Nobody does that. Right. They go to the brakes when they're nervous and they stay with the brakes till they're happy with their speed and direction, right? That's what they care about. How much, what is the front end telling me? So really they care more about their technique and the feedback from what the bike is giving them. And if their technique isn't right on the bike, they're never going to get that feedback. Right. They're never going to be pushing those lap times, much less the consistency. Like over the course of a MotoGP race, what do they lose like 30 pounds worth of fuel? 
not to mention the tires get shagged over the course of the race. Like the whole dynamic of the bike changes, right? But they're still running within tenths of their original lap. Yeah, they have to be adaptable. And, right. and because it is measured, we can see by looking at the riders who are fast and don't crash, we can see what works. And then right. we kind of almost go at it backwards. I, there was an interview with Randy Mamola. And he was talking about Fabio Quattararo, who is arguably on probably the worst bike on the paddock. We're getting a little left up here, but this is fascinating. A little bit. But like, uh, um, he's, he's talking about Fabio Quattararo, who's arguably on probably one of the worst bikes on the, on the MotoGP grid this year. Yet he's the points leader and he's unbelievably consistent. And Mamola was saying that we're looking at his data and he's doing things that we've never seen anybody do before. Right. We don't know why he's, we're looking, we're trying to figure out what he's doing and how that's affecting the motorcycle and why that's making him so competitive on a non-competitive motorcycle. Right. Race, the, racing is our laboratory. Racing is the scientific evidence that a lot of people on Reddit say, well, where's your scientific proof? Well, we kind of have it. We don't have big, massive studies funded by universities to do this. We have racing. Right. And that's where we figure out. And the beautiful thing about you know, racing is it's the same techniques to a different degree of application. And that's where best practices are formed, right? So if, if racing is the peak of our sport, if racing is the, we're gonna push this bike, these tires to what they're, to the 101% of what they're capable of, to find out where that limit is, that technique will work all the way down at 1%. Yeah, and you can work that, you, you have to work backwards, right? You have to work from the top down. You can't take something that only works in this very specific scenario at 10 miles an hour in a parking lot and go, cool, I'm going to make it work at this pace, or I'm going to make it work in these conditions over here. That is such a profound point right there. It's like perfect day, perfect tires. Slow speed. Slow speed. Tons of grip. We can do a lot. We can get away with a lot. But why would we practice things that only work in the perfect when nothing else in the world is perfect? So when we're on that canyon ride, all we've been doing is practicing that perfect day, right? When we go on that canyon ride, suddenly there's a snowstorm. What are you gonna do? Your tires are shagged. What are you gonna do? Cars spun out. What are you gonna do? Gravel in your lane, still. It, some of those techniques that you may have been practicing will not work in those scenarios. Right. You so can't, why yeah. not start with best practices? Whatever degree of application you want, pace regardless, just, just use the technique because they'll work at any pace in any condition. Yeah, I get tired of like, back to like the topic we're trying to talk about, um, the, the advice that's always doled out that's, um, we'll just go slower, we'll, we'll just, just go slower. You use the right slower. word there, advice. There's a huge difference between advice and instruction. Yes. And yeah. if you're looking for advice on how to ride a motorcycle, you're using the wrong word. Yeah. Look for instruction, because instruction requires research requires curriculum, requires instructors, requires expertise, all these other things. I can give advice till I'm blue in the mouth. I can say, hey, look, you should peel an onion this way. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's the way I peel an onion. Right. Well, and as, you know, like someone who's been teaching, you teach, right? How many times, like, does new information come out and you're like, oh, I need to adjust what I have been saying based on this new information, yeah, right? So, um, I was talking to Nick Einach, our, our CEO, um, a couple months ago. We were talking about, you know, one of the reasons I really actually went to Champ School after I was told about it was because Champ School is willing to be wrong, but will correct it as quickly as possible. So uh, Nick wrote the pace back in the day, and then he went, okay, people took this a little weird. I'm going to write the pace 2.0 and say, look, I was wrong. This is how it's supposed to work. 
And that to me was an amazing thing. Like, okay, cool. Dude's willing to recognize that he was wrong, fix it and put out best practices, right? Huge to me as a person. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about, you know, how the school adjusts its curriculum as time goes on. Like I'll, I'll literally sit there. I've, I've sat there at Indy Motorsports Ranch and watch the guys watching MotoGP and they'll pause and go, I wonder why he's doing that. Let's look at that. Um, so one of the stories Nick was telling me was, you know, back in the day when Rossi started dangling his leg, everyone went, what the hell is he doing? So they literally took two days at, I forget what track it was, but they went out and tried it. Tried it in every single corner, both sides of the bike. And they found like, okay, cool. It works in a couple places. Don't really like it in these other places, but we think we know why he's doing it now. You know, and of course, nobody ever tells you why they do something because they want that competitive edge, but they went out and tried it and added it to the curriculum. Now everybody just about does it. Yeah, well, yeah. and we understand where it works, right? right? It works like over the top of a hill to move the center of gravity. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, water, you know, weight down lower and, and, and further back into the, in, in the inside, mm-hmm. so. Right. It's a good air and, and I think that's a good, um, you know, there's one thing, you know, if we're like talking about identifying quality sources, right? right? It's one thing when you correct or you're like, I now have information. Right. There's another thing and there's a, and I believe strongly in this, you can identify a bad source if they are constantly contradicting themselves, right? Yep. Today they say do this, two days later they say do something totally different. Right now they're saying, you know, slow until you can see the exit, you know, and then they do a video or may write an article or they do whatever a couple weeks later where they say get on the gas as soon as you possibly can. And we see this a lot, you know, particularly in, in your arena, right? YouTube. Um, and, you know, through, honestly, the fault isn't completely with the content creators, right? The fault is largely with YouTube just because of the way YouTube monetizes things. Oh, it's, it's terrible. Because I can talk about that. It's, they've changed their algorithm where all they're looking for is what they call the click-through rate. And the click-through rate is when they show you a thumbnail, if you click on it, you get credit for that. And the higher your click-through rate is, the more YouTube is promoting you right now. They're not promoting based on quality of content. So the way you get high click-through rate is you have everybody looks like they're sneezing in the thumbnail. Yeah. You know, right. or you create content that is somewhat salacious. It's, it's content yeah. that is purposely never do this. Always, always do, do that. that. Yeah. Or it contradicts something like, um, you know, they're purposely being contradictory. And to get those clicks, to get those views, which makes the channel grow, which makes you money. Clickbait. It's clickbait. And yeah. it's unfortunate that that's how it works. And I'm always trying to like skirt the line, like how much can I get away with that? You know, but I'm unwilling. I, I feel like I have a responsibility to not put out contradictory information for the sake of growing the channel. Right. I feel like people's safety is on the line, you know, and I try really hard you know, not just to like, really how great I am, but like it's, but I take it seriously. Yeah. I think it's, there's a responsibility and it's part of why I love working with you guys because not only, you know, you guys are doing all this stuff too, but you have access by your association with a certain manufacturer. You guys get access to some like top level engineers and racers. And, yeah. you know, I, I believe you guys work with Bosch who develops the traction control systems. You know, like that's access that, you know, like Bob's, YouTube channel barn extravaganza right. doesn't have. And so like, you know, talking about Bob, right? So where do we find these best practices? We find them again at what the best riders, what the best teams, what the best engineers are doing. Like these bikes, like May was saying, are not designed by Bob. They're designed by those guys that are winning the races, winning championships and not falling down. 
because that's how you win a championship is you go fast, you go consistently and you don't fall down. And you don't crash, right? Yeah, that's a big part of it. Like everyone's like, well, you, you can do that on the racetrack because like crashing is like, no, you, you don't win championships in the gravel trap. Right, yep. so look at your, your sources, right? If your sources are using Bob as their example, there's a red flag right there. Mm -hmm. If your sources are going, hey, I talked to Sylvan Guntoli. Hey, I talked to Fabio. Hey, I talked to, you know, Josh Hayes, whoever else, right, that has that pedigree. Okay, I might listen now. What's this guy saying? And to that point, it's fascinating on Reddit. You go to our motorcyclists and the arguments are atrocious. You go to our track I would use days. hilarious. Sometimes hilarious. Yeah, but like you're like, where is this logic coming from? Right. You go to our track days and the same topic presented turns into an, a really compelling discussion yeah. where people are bringing up like informed. And it, it's our track days is surprisingly delightfully entertaining and informed yeah. where our motorcyclists can sometimes be a train wreck. Like you just, it's hard to look away and you get upset and you're like, no, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like we're all there. I'll bet you, you know, like Reddit yeah. is Reddit has a tremendous amount of value, but Reddit also kind of has the flaw that a compelling argument sometimes gets the points without the validity, right? Like, oh, that makes a good argument, or I like what he said, so I'm giving him the upvote, even though it's nonsense. The term sophist comes to mind. They yeah. say, they talk a lot, but they don't say anything. Yeah. Right? Politicians is another yeah, word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. man, you can sound, like there are some arguments that I've seen on Reddit, just not even our motorcycles, but just generally that, that is a beautiful argument. You've said absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. You've changed no minds. You don't actually have a point, but man, you're good at talking. And this is one of the, the biggest problems I have, you know, getting back to our, our ordinary topic of new riders is um, new rider coaches. For the most mm -hmm. part, like fantastic people, you know, they, they really have their hearts set on helping riders. They're doing the Lord's work. They, they really are. are. Yeah. Like, that's where the rubber meets the road. The problem I have is the, a lot of the new rider coaches that I know personally have never taken an interest in investing in their own skill set. They can parrot the words. They can look at the book and go, do this, 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 and this. Well, what question do you have? Well, my book says this. Yeah. Right, they don't know how to answer it. Versus a lot of the instructors I've known over the years, the ones that do go on, they do track days and they get into racing, their ability as a, a basic rider instructor also blossoms because yeah. they can understand those kind of more complicated questions. Yep. Right. Well, the more you understand and the more you can explain to different people, because not everybody understands things exactly the same way. So as a coach, you need to be able to adjust how you say things and how you explain them so that each individual person, it right. clicks because it doesn't click the same for everybody. Well, and as a female writer, I'm sure you've seen like different challenges in this where they're trying to like talk to you. Yeah. You know, like, this, can you speak to that? Is it like the challenges? Oh like yeah, I get talked at a lot. And that, I say talked at because that's what it is. Like, Mansplained? Yeah, it's <laughs> like, I don't need you to explain that to me. I just need you to help me understand it. So don't keep repeating the same thing over and over again. Like, I need you to actually explain something to me. It's hard, but I know a lot of male writers that are the same way. It's like, not everybody has the same vocabulary and their brain doesn't process things the same. So you need to be able to explain what you're actually trying to say. Because right. telling somebody, okay, you need to go to the brakes here and this is why you do it, is not the same as, go to the brakes when you feel nervous because that nervous feeling is different for everybody. And individually, as you get better riding, you can sneak up on that nervousness and you can push it. But if you say, break here, that point is not always gonna be the same. Right, uh, someone that we all know recently had an experience like this where female rider 
very like experienced writer. She's been writing for years and years and years and years at uh, an educational environment. And the male coach was like, tip in here and do this. Just trust me. Yep. And, and you know, it's, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. Right. And so a, a good coach, a good program makes a world of difference. And that's something else I think it's harder for new writers to discern is, you know, we use the term MSF as kind of this ubiquitous term, but states have the option to contract with whomever they want to develop their new writer program. In America, it's a little bit more convoluted. So right. sometimes like MSF is kind of like the dog that gets kicked all the time because it's like the name everybody knows. But not all programs are created equal. Even within like a single state, there might be multiple providers using the same source, but they end up with very different results. You know, like this program is taught only by police officers. They have a very different attitude than this program that is all taught by enthusiasts. We're you actually know. working with a, a program, WMST, out of Washington. Um, we're kind of partnering with them a little bit, seeing how they do approach their uh, new rider programs. And they have a really interesting system. It's a a dual licensing program or a two class licensing program. So you go to the first class, it's basically you know the first two days of your MSF or basic writer course, right? You don't get a license then. You have to come back six months later or within six months and take the advanced course or the second half of that. So class. they basically get like a learner's permit. They are allowed to ride during the daytime or um, I'm honestly not sure exactly what they do between in those six months, but you have to come back and finish the second half of the course. And so they teach brand new riders breaking the past tipping. They teach brand new riders how to go to the brakes in a corner. So they're they're directly talking to the two places that riders are dying the most in corners and at intersections. Right. 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 Um, so in the process of looking through that SMSA stuff, uh, I was looking at. And what is SMSA? Just for like those. Who uh, the familiar. State Motorcycle Safety Association. So it's all. Each, each of those you know, respective state programs they all get together um, every year for a, a national summit to talk about you know, motorcycle safety, um, statistics, all these other things. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking through the data that um, the Federal Highway Administration put together. It's called the Motorcycle Crash Causation Study. Um, you can email them and you know, get the information for yourself. Um, fantastic people over there. The study is, actually, the study is super interesting. Um, you know, my, my figures aren't going to be 100% accurate, but off the top of my head, um, something like 80% of all motorcycle fatalities uh, showed no evidence of brake use. Wow. Yeah. So, so maybe we should cover the brake. Yeah. Maybe we should cover the brake. Yeah. And then the, of the remaining you know, 20%, about half of that showed evidence of locking the brakes. So there's an issue of, can I go to the brakes? And there's also an issue of, how do I use the brakes? Yep. If you panic, if you don't have the knowledge and the skills and to do it properly, that's well, just as dangerous. If you're not covering the brake, there's a higher probability, you know, like that second yeah. at 60 yeah. miles an hour is what, like 80 feet or something? Mm-hmm. I don't know. 88 feet, yeah. Yeah, right? And so like 88 feet is a world yeah. if there's like a semi tipped over in front and of you. Even yeah. half a second, right? If that reaction time is half a second that you're saving by covering the brake, it's 44 feet. Yep. Can you miss a bus in 44 feet? Absolutely. Yeah, it makes a difference. And if we're late to a control, we're generally abrupt with it, right? And it's not necessarily how much brake pressure we're using, but it's how fast we're riding that brake. Like we say, load the tire before we work the tire. If we're not letting that suspension collapse and letting that contact patch spread out and actually loading that tire before we truly ask it to work and help us stop in an emergency, we're just blowing straight through that forks travel, blowing straight through the compression damping, everything else, and overwhelming the tire. 
all of a sudden you are going to go down because you lose traction. That's where I, I imagine the never touch your brake advice came from. Yep. Right. It wasn't that the control was bad. It was the application of the control that was bad. And so we're, you know, we're putting a Band-Aid on, on the wrong wound. Yeah. Well, from my understanding, it also comes from, you know, back in the day of having drum brakes. Drum brakes. Drum brakes were, I, I don't know. I, I had an old motorcycle with drum brakes, and, and uh, I don't know if I could lock the tire if I tried. Maybe the rear I could, but the front tire, it was, uh, the brake worked on geologic terms. It, it eroded speed the way <laughs> water erodes a mountain. Gotcha. It, it was, there wasn't a whole lot of, so, you know, but that brings out the great point. You know, the motorcycle evolution, especially tire evolution and suspension evolution, it's a, it's a different ball game than yeah. it was in, when I was learning to ride. It's better now. Yeah, it is, and, but we're still using, you know, 1970s technique mm -hmm. for modern technology. Right. And by modern, I mean, do you have disc brakes? <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you have radial <laughs> tires? You right. Know? Are the tires black and round? <laughs> like, so if we're upgrading brakes, if we're upgrading ABS, traction control, tire technology, um, you know, suspension geometry, suspension components, if we're upgrading all these hard parts, why does it make sense or does it make sense to have never upgraded the software, right. never upgraded this? Yeah, the software is kind of like a good analogy, right? Like right. you, uh, I have this brand new computer, but right? it's running Windows Super 95. Mega. Yes, <laughs> Dude, Windows, I'm on DOS, man. Like, right, text-based. But you it's, know? it's, I mean, that's the same thing we're seeing in the motorcycle industry, right? Like we, you can go out today as a brand new rider, just graduated your basic riding class, and buy a forty thousand dollar Panigale V4S, right? If you can find one, but right, you can buy that turnkey superbike, two hundred and something horsepower best electronics in the world, ridiculous tires, super, just superb bike. But then you're gonna load Windows 95 on it. Yeah. Right, but you're, ju <laughs> you're jumping on it with effectively Windows 95 or MS-DOS. Yeah, and it's, and so and like for, not only- For you guys that are too young to know what MS-DOS is, like- <laughs> it's, You had to Google type things it. in. Yeah. You had to Google it. Like the internet, you had to like type words in and like you yeah. didn't get pictures, you just read words on the internet. Yeah, see You had prompt. to log Let's into other website, into other, um, Anyway, but, but it's not only you're missing out on the potential, right? The potential of a modern motorcycle when ridden with modern techniques is it's glorious. It is a spectacular experience. And that's one of the, like, the heartbreaking things about the way riders are taught, right? Is the answer for everything is just slow down earlier or slow down more. Yeah, or you should have been going slower. Sh that's the worst. That's you the worst. Been going well, what do slower. I do now? Like, do I just roll back my, my right. DeLorean I, to I'm go already, back? I'm already running wide in a corner. I'll go ahead and re rewind and like, time. Darn it, I should have. You know, should have doesn't help me in the moment. You right. Know? And there's, I mean, let's be honest, it's not fun to ride a motorcycle at 20 miles an hour everywhere. No, it's terrible. Like if you're, you're going up a canyon ride, like um, the Loman Loop that we do, right? Yeah. I would argue that 80% of those corners are blind corners. You just, you can't see around the corner. So how am I supposed to set my speed for a corner that I can't see around? And the answer is, well, just go slower. Where the hell's the fun in that? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it's not just that. The slower you go on a motorcycle, the less stable it is. So you're essentially telling students to slow down and make their motorcycle less rideable. You're also giving up. So if you're riding that slowly, where you're just basically neutral throttle everywhere, right? So you're around the corners, you're giving up on control of your contact patch your suspension geometry, and really everything that makes the bike ride the way it's designed to. I'm gonna say you're giving up on joy. Yeah. The joy yeah. of that, it's, it's simply not fun. And I can already hear the comments, oh, well, you're just riding too fast then. You're, you're wanting to be a racer on no. the street. No. No, not at all. I'll be the first person to say like, 
chill out, man. But yeah. like, you can still, I mean, you can have a good time without putting yourself or anybody else at risk, right. you know, and run kind of a reasonable, fun pace. So like when we're out riding, we trail break for every corner we slow for, right? If I'm slowing down for a corner, I'm picking up a little bit of breaks, even if it's one or two points of breaks, right? One or two percent. Absolutely. Even if yeah. it's just enough, like, hey, my engine braking might be plenty to slow me down for this, but I'm still gonna, as a street rider, I'm still gonna pick up that brake because I want that brake light on at yeah. a minimum. Not only that, if my brake light is on, if I'm already there, right, already decelerating and controlling that deceleration, because let's face it, engine braking is not adjustable. It's not repeatable and it's not controllable. You're not gonna pull right. the clutch in mid corner yeah. because you're removing a, a different element of control, right? You have no control over the rear at that point. But by having my fingers on the brake lever, by using a little bit of brakes, when I'm coming around that blind corner and there's a deer sitting there, I can just simply add more brakes. I don't have to go, oh. Now what do I do? I got to adjust my thing. Right. And, and I also want to bring up, for anybody, and I get this all the time, that there's no such thing as a blind corner. I welcome you to come out west. Yes. Because they are all blind. There's mountains in between them. Or they'll say, well, just pay attention to the speed advisory sign. Again, come out west. Maybe one corner in 50 has a speed advisory sign, and you're lucky if that one has any relevance in reality. Right. Like I, like I think one of the recent videos I just did, the speed limit on the road was 15 miles an hour, and the speed advisory sign was 25. So, so speed up for the corner. Speed up for the corner, I guess. Like, <laughs> right. You know, like, so you, we have to be able to make our own decisions. We have to have the skill set to deal with these dynamic environments that are ever-changing and unpredictable. And even, you know, getting back to our, our best practices discussion, let's say you do use that, that posted advisory sign, right? Like every single time you go to a corner, hey, 35 mile an hour corner, I'm gonna go 35. What happens when it's raining? Well, if there's a rock in the middle of the road. Yeah, are you still gonna go 35? But the sign said. But the sign said, yeah. I I'm really trusting that guy who gets paid six bucks an hour to go put up signs on the yeah. side of the road. I'm putting a lot of faith in that guy. So at the end of the day, it goes back to, why would you practice something that will only work in the perfect? All right, so let's talk about common new rider mistakes that we've seen. Right. Abruptness. Abruptness is the big one. Upgrading right? their bike before they upgrade themselves. Yes, oh my gosh. Like how many people out there, they go buy the new motorcycle, they don't buy, they buy a helmet maybe, yeah. Right? Depends on if it's a law. Like here, it's not a law. Out west. Come out west. Helmets aren't required. Nobody cares. <laughs> um, but they go buy a slip-on, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I like a slip-on as much as the next guy. I mean, I still run a stock exhaust on the MT-10 because Yamaha nailed it with that exhaust <laughs> note. <laughs> yeah. With that, it doesn't, like, bang for the buck, right? It's it's a thousand dollars for now like earplugs. Now I got to buy earplugs too. Yeah, right? yeah. it's a thousand dollars to tell everyone else how cool you are. Right, and to annoy or the uh, annoy your neighbors. Mm -hmm. Right, but you know to your point, it's so common, right? Like as soon as you buy a bike, oh, I have to do this to it, I have to do that to it, I have to do this to it. Stock bikes are pretty dang good. Yeah. They're amazing. And I understand the excitement, right? You, you bought the new thing. You're excited about the new thing. I want to make the new thing mine. I want to personalize it. That's part of motorcycle culture, right? right? We all want to personalize it. Yeah. So we started really into motorsports with a Jeep, right? Like we're I was stationed out in Southern California, like not the fun end of Southern California. The, <laughs> no. bar, the Bakersfield the part of Southern California. And so the only thing to do there, and I asked one of my you know, senior NCOs, I was like, hey, what's there to do at Irwin? The answer was leave. <laughs> and so we got into Jeeps, right? I had a Jeep at the time, um, started getting to rock crawling. And kind of the way we thought about upgrading the Jeep for rock crawling was first protect your investment. Like 
add the armor, add the sliders, add the, you know, the engine case covers. Cool. That is a fantastic choice. Add the protection for yourself, get the helmet, get the, you know, get the gloves, get the boots, get the suit, whatever you, whatever you feel you need, whatever your personal level of risk acceptance is. Mm -hmm. um, you want the most protective thing in the world. You know, you're going to go carve up some canyons or you just don't like accepting a bunch of risk. Grab a suit, uh, you know, leather race suit from Dainese. Um, but once you protect your investment, then start working on your skill because once you'll, you'll find that upgrading your skill, you'll get a better understanding of where the stock vehicle, whatever the vehicle is, is actually starting to limit you and then replace that part. So like for riding, riding, for example, right? Level up your skill. You're getting to a point where, man, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get some brake fade. Okay. Let's think about changing out, you know, pads, lines, and fluids. Okay, cool. Now my, now I'm, I'm much happier with the brakes. I'm still increasing my skill. Man, you know, my suspension is kind of holding me back, but you will never know that your suspension is holding you back until you get to that level of skill and that right. level of pace. You know, that's the mistake a lot of people get into with upgrading motorcycles is they think, well, the bike has a problem. Yeah, but can the bike problem be fixed with my skills? It's way cheaper. If I, if I learn a new skill, right, and I get better at that thing, I take that with me everywhere I go for the rest of my riding career. Sure. Yeah. I put a slip-on on or I put a fork or I whatever, that's good for that motorcycle. And then when that motorcycle's gone, that upgrade is gone. Yeah. Right. You well, know? that's the argument that we get a lot with people and teaching going to schools. Schools are expensive. They are. That's great. How much was that exhaust you put on? How much were those forks? How much was that rear shock? You're telling me that all of those things are less expensive than going to a school? You talk about, you know, adjustability, right? That's what we're chasing as riders is not we because we don't ride by road, right? We ride based on direction. You know, whatever control we need to be on is dictated by what we need the bike to do to get it turned. And so riding based on direction means we have to be adjustable by nature. And it allows us to be adjustable because we're not riding based on, you know, this crack in the pavement there and that mark over there. So yesterday um, we did it or two days ago now, we yeah. did a two up ride, right? Mostly stock MT10. On, on the racetrack, by the way. On the racetrack, yeah, yeah. So two up ride on the racetrack. Um, I am not a light person. I'm you not a light. almost six foot. Yep. So there's a lot of weight on the MT10, right? I do have a shock on it, but the shock was never set up for two people. Well, and you forgot to, you know, do a little bit of adjustment. Yeah, so I still, I <laughs> didn't really do soft. anything with the preload. It was very soft, very squishy. So we're just kind of doing this around some of the corners and, um, was still fun, but it was immediately identified, okay, there's, there's an issue now. And I've changed something on the bike, namely what we're doing on the bike, because mm -hmm. we've added extra weight. Well, a lot of people ride with their significant other, yeah. right? right? This is not an uncommon scenario that you're bringing up here. Right, and so I could have said, oh, well, you know, the suspension is trash, we shouldn't do this. No, we just went out and had fun. Mm -hmm. Because again, you know, that ability to adjust our riding, that, that skill set to go, okay, something has changed, let's figure this out. So I have to use a lot more rear brake because there's more weight and I have, I have more braking force available in the rear and using the rear brake to slow that rebound, right? So there's so much weight on the rear now because of the two of us sitting back there that the shock was just doing this behind me. So I had to slow down that, that rebound by using the rear brake, right? I had to add one of those extra tools to slow everything down. And then when it came time for compression, if I would just do this, there's probably plenty of grip because there's so much mechanical weight, mm -hmm. but you have to be super slow sneaking on that first 5% with a passenger on the back because otherwise you'll just blow through that shock travel. So it really becomes kind of a game of 
what problem can you throw at me? Let's ride around it. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm going to quote Nick Einach on this one because I think it's something he said that just really resonated with me. And it's like, we shouldn't ride with hope, hoping we slowed down enough, hoping, <laughs> hoping, you know, hoping I don't have to lean anymore, hoping the turn doesn't get tighter, but become technical riders, you know? And like re you were talking about the rear brake, you know, advice out there all the time is like, well, I never use my rear brake or I only use my rear brake or whatever. No, these things are tools that do things. Right. And when we become technical riders, we begin to understand what these controls do in these different situations, and I can apply the tool when I need it. There's a, a Japanese proverb if, that if, uh, if I only own a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, yep. you know? And so like by, by having a bigger toolbox, it again, like it really just comes back to, and I know we get really wrapped up in the techniques and the stuff like that, but it really comes back to is it makes it more fun. It does. It, it yeah. makes the sport more fun. If you're the rider that's throwing money at your bike, you're literally just turning everything into a nail. Like you have a hammer now. That's all you have yeah. is your wallet. Yeah. So what, I mean, what are you going to do with that? If everything looks like a monetary problem, you're just going to keep throwing money at it. Mm -hmm. But once you realize, no, it's, it's a me problem. Like once you take your ego and put it in check and go, nah, man, you're, you're, you might be the top 5% of riders, but man, there's a lot of people faster than you and better than you. But once you understand that, once you can be honest with yourself and go, I need to improve. Then things stop looking more like a money problem and start looking more like a, hey, let's let's find some technique here. Let's really work on this and put some effort into it. Yep. Well, the thing that I found with Champ School and Champ U is it takes the drama out of writing mm. because it gives you the tools to know what to do. So like, say you're coming in hot to a corner, whether you're on the track, whether you're on the road, whatever. That sense of panic that you get can overrule everything. And then all of a sudden, you don't know what to do. You freeze up, you go off the road, you go off the track, it's not you're fun. down. Yeah. If you know, oh, what I need to do is I need to not look at the outside of the track, not look at the outside of the road, and I need to put my eyes back to the apex and find where I need to go. Guess what? You don't feel like you're coming in hot again. Yeah, the instead of like, like the road, right? Yeah. Like, oh, well, you should have gone slower. Okay, no, no, no. We're past that yeah. now. Here's what I can do in these situations. Exactly. And that's, again, what's great, you know, on, on going you know, through that. Just start thinking, hey, radius equals miles an hour, yeah. right? Like, okay, cool, I gotta go to the brakes. Well, and that kind of leads into something else that I was kind of wanting to talk about. You get a lot of sources out there that talk about, like, finding your style. You know, like, I'm gonna find oh, my, yeah. my writing style is I like to counterweight. Well, Fabio has his style. All these right, <laughs> right, exactly, style. yeah. We hear about style a lot. And, and you know, I think, and I wanna hear what you have to say about this too, is that, that style comes into play once you have like the, the fundamental basics nailed. Right. Then we can start thinking about style. And honestly, I think style is, I like red more than I like blue. Yeah. Like, that's the style I kinda I like after. my suit to be bright colored. <laughs> right, there we go. I like, I like to look like a radioactive bumble. Exactly. Yeah, like, that's cool. <laughs> and honestly, like, you know, that's what style should be perceived as is that little bit of, you know, extra flair that somebody does. But, you know, people get so wrapped around the axle on like 5% of what's important in motorcycle riding. Yeah. And really, it's like the very last 5%. When you're chasing tenths at the world stage, that's when that style can come into play. But you look at the guys in MotoGP, World Superbike, Moto America. The guys that are running out front, they're all doing the same things, different degrees of application, maybe, you know, slightly different just because their bodies are different, their bikes are different, but they're still going to the brakes so they're nervous. They're still staying with their bikes until the brakes until they're happy with their speed and direction. You know, they're using neutral throttle. They're using these controls. They're, they're loading the tire before they work the tire. They're all using them the same. All the I, things that matter, they're doing the same. Yeah. 
I love those super slow motion shots that they'll do, you know, because they have the, the MotoGP has the money, right? Where they have like the whole pack going through a chicane, right? Yeah. And it's like the one bike tips in and the other bike comes out and you watch all 30 riders or 20 riders in the paddock. They all look fundamentally exactly the same. And they're all on different machines. They're all on different machines. They're all physically different. S small, tall. Yeah. yeah. And so at that point you go, well, why the hell am I caring about what kind of flare he does? Why am I caring about, you know, this guy's foot, is it a 34 degree angle on the foot peg versus a 42 degree angle? You know, why, why do we care about that if we're not trail breaking yet? Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's the, you know. Um, you're, you're getting lost, you're getting wrapped around the axle right. for this 5% when you don't have the 95% down yet. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on that 95% of the sport that really matters, that's gonna, you know, keep you from running wide, keep you from dying in a corner. When we moved to Salt Lake City, it was a job uh, with the Forest Service for the Olympics, the 2002 Olympic Games. That's how we ended up in this area. And uh, so I had the tremendous opportunity as I was hanging out with, uh, uh, you know, gold medal athletes. And of course, you know, being kind of like a motorcycle track guy, I really got kind of geeked out about the bobsleds guys. Like I could kind of talk to them in their language. We kind of spoke. And I remember speaking to the guy who won the gold medal. And I was like, hey, so like, like, what was your trick to win the gold medal? This massive, you know, pool of people that do this. And he goes, he goes, honestly, every run, all I try to do is get the basics right. Yeah. All I'm trying to do is just get the basics. If I can get the basics right, I'll have a good run. Yeah, the, you know, the Marine Corps uses the, the term, and so do we in the sniper community, brilliance in the basics. Like, at, at a face value, and, you know, this is going to probably piss off a lot of people on YouTube, there is no secret sauce in the sport. There isn't. There, there isn't some piece of information that's going to go, boom, you're now the best motorcycle rider in the world because you found this secret locked up compartment. Yeah, nobody's holding anything back from you. Like, no. And Sylvan Guintoli's YouTube channel is awesome. I yeah. love oh, his fantastic. channel. Because this dude's one of the best riders in the world. And he's like, let me tell you, here, I'm here. Oh, I'm, and I'm going to do it in French yeah. and I'm going to do it in English. Yeah. You know, like the dude's awesome. And it's, it, there is no secret sauce. And that's the beautiful thing about best practices, right? We can mimic those same things, those same techniques that Fabio and Mark and all those guys are using just at a different degree of application, right? Where, where they're hanging off the bike, dragging shoulders around a corner. We can still use the technique of hanging off the bike and, you know, reducing the lean angle. At 45 miles, at 45 an, hour miles an hour by just moving our head. Yeah. Same technique, different degree of application. Where our trail braking on the street might be, hey, I'm going to use like two or three points of brakes just to get the brake light on and get ready for this corner that I can't see around. They're sitting there loading that front end and bottoming out the forks in the corner. When you start looking at the clickbait headlines, right? When you start going, oh, you know, world changing technique here let's do this other thing instead of what everyone else does. Right. That, I think a, I know the video you're talking about. There's a red flag there. I, I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah, no, we're, that's but not there, our game. But there, there ends up like being a red flag. flag there, right? Like, why is this person saying to do something completely different than what the best riders in the world are doing? First, if, go ahead and watch the video. Does it match? Does what this person's saying match what world champions are doing? If not, why are they doing it? If, if this was a better technique, why wouldn't the world champions be doing it? Right, and I'll say this, you know, like if you hate the clickbait, right? 
you know, like give, give YouTube creators a, a break with the clickbaity yeah. stuff. It's what we're kind of forced into and the algorithm's gonna change in a couple years and it'll be different. But right now this is, if we wanna survive, if I wanna be able to pay for these cameras and the microphones and it the lights, and like I, there has to be a degree of it. Right. But if you hate clickbait, the one way to kind of like game the system is you click subscribe and you click on the bell. And then when you first go to your YouTube, don't click on the thing it shows you, click on your subscriptions tab. Mm -hmm. And that breaks the algorithm because then you're you're collating what you want to see, right. not YouTube. And it, it allows us as creators to to still be able to kind of get the reach that we're trying to get to survive without having to like stoop to the and clickbait. This should be crap. like a whole separate, you know, podcast subtopic, right? Oh, yeah, how, like, like as a motorcyclist, how do you use YouTube? Yeah. Where where can you use where YouTube? You, well it's like Google. There's a art to using Google. You can't just go into Google and type something in and yeah, you, find the right. you, you don't exactly type, you, what you're looking for. Yeah, you don't type no. in the answer to the question you want. Like, no. is the Earth flat? Google will give you plenty of sources that the Earth is flat. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Well, that and like the upvotes, right? Like, this is not a democratic sport in the sense that the majority rules. Right. Right. And yeah. the dangerous thing is, you know, we see a lot of comments of, oh, well, you know, this YouTube personality says to do it, therefore I will. Yeah, be careful of that. And as a YouTube personality, right. um, be careful of that. Like, look at where that came from. Like, you even a couple of years ago had some videos we were kind of scratching our heads at and we're like, what's going on, Dave? <laughs> and, but you came out and you were like, hey, look, I, I did this thing wrong years ago. Yeah. Like, let's fix this. Let's stop that information right now and let's, let's get back to yeah, this. Yeah, more information changed the whole game. And I will continue to do that. Right. I, I don't know if I heard it from you first or I want to be wrong for as little time as possible. Right. Yep. You know, but I will be wrong. I will make mistakes. But the difference is I get frustrated when, you know, a source doubles down on the bad idea because it appears as though they don't want to admit that they were wrong. Right. Yep. For for May, I'm assuming, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, as a female writer, but especially, you know, being around champ school and being around the you know, curriculum and the and the guys, um, you know probably a lot more about motorcycling than most people. Just hands down, you just do. Well, I mean, before I even ride it, before I even started writing, I went to champ school with him. I didn't ride, I just sat in the classroom and listened. And it's like nothing really made sense right then because I didn't have anything to apply it to, but I had that little knowledge base in my head. And then when I started writing, it was like, oh, okay, yeah, this stuff makes sense. So I have a little, I don't know if I want to call it a coddled upbringing into the motorcycle community, but I had a very smooth transitioned into writing. I had now, all the when, instruction. When guys mansplain stuff to you, right? When I just zone out. And it's, it's one of those things where you can't tell them like, hey, I know more than you, shut up. Well, the other thing is I am, I'm a lot more cautious than men. And that I think is the biggest difference between female and male writers. And I hate the women writer thing. Like I am a writer who happens to be female. I am not a woman first. I am a motorcycle writer and it's hard to be a woman who, you know, I know we're cautious. We have our willingness to put risk into something is a lot smaller than a men's, a male's. So I'm going to be slower because I want to perfect what I'm doing before I become fast. And I know a lot of other women are like that. We're very cautious. We're very hard on ourselves. So we have to be perfect before we're, we will be willing to take the risk. So I might be slower than you, but I'm sorry, I'm a better rider than you are. So to wrap up our episode, our first episode, I thought we should come up with a, a, what we think are the best beginner bike advice. So, so I started off our best beginner bikes to buy. 
So start off, I went to the internet because it is the source of all things. And, and I have. I, I like how you phrase the source of all things, not the source of all truth. <laughs> we know this. The earth is flat, man. We have evidence that the earth yep. is flat, yep. right? Um, the the, the earth, truth is out there. What was the, the, uh, the flat earth society has members all around the globe? Yes. Okay, so hang on. Um, so this is what the internet says is the best bikes for the new rider to buy. Please be a V4S on there. In the adventure category, they have the Royal Enfield Himalayan, the BMW GS310, the KTM 390 Adventure, the Versus 300, the CB500X, and, and uh, the TW200. Okay, so for street riding, right? <laughs> yeah. That's what we're talking about? Yeah, we're talking about like, like the legitimate first time buyer, and we gotta assume, like, we are a global entity here, so uh, only 30% of our views actually come from America, so we gotta consider European. Sure. You know, we get a lot of people from Australia, New Zealand. The TW200, maybe, okay, maybe Australia, <laughs> I see that, right? Like, you need a bigger tire to squish the spiders or something? <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> But, man, there's a lot of little, little bikes. These are little, for little bikes. standards, yeah. right? For Indian standards, I know I just chatted with a, a gentleman who's from India yesterday, actually, in the paddock, and he was saying, you know, a 600 cc, you know, you know, 1100 cc bike—that's unheard of in India. Mm -hmm. You know, you got a 125, you're doing pretty good. Yeah, they also have access to motorcycles that you don't have here. There's yeah. like a yeah, but, but, but I think I know where you're going with this. So the, there's an issue with the little bikes, especially for beginner riders, right? There's actually two issues with it. One is you don't have the power to get around a problem. So you're on the freeway. There's a truck coming into your lane. He doesn't see you because you're tiny and you're in his blind spot. As a newer rider, totally totally feasible, right? You don't have the power to accelerate past that truck or to at least get into his, you know, into his mirror somewhere. So you're going to have to go to the brakes instead. What happens when that car is behind you? You don't have the power to go forward. You can't brake hard because there's a car right behind you. Mm -hmm. so you I would like, a, as a newer rider, a little more power to get around a problem. Yeah, not, I, not so much power that I yeet myself off the road, right? but enough to get around a problem. So looking at this adventure category, I think the adventure category, we can maybe cheat it to a little smaller yeah. sure. because there's a probably higher probability they're gonna be riding off road. Yeah, like the I think the TW200 we can objectively yeah, say is the, no. 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 It's not even a good dirt bike. It's, I would say that it's a good sprinkler bike. Yeah, and the, I don't think a new rider really wants to be dealing with the Royal Enfield. I think they're awesome. I would love to Beautiful own one. Beautiful bike. Yeah. But I, I think it's better to kind of stick with like the bigger the bigger brands. This is like for the new rider experience. Um, the BMW GS310 I think is kind of a humdinger of an adventure of a That's little adventure bike. That's actually not bad. Like that, and they're relatively uh, the cheap. KTM. They're like four grand. And yeah. so kind of what I'm thinking about when I'm looking, you know, to to recommend a new bike to a new rider is a standard bike, a standard naked upright. Well, we have that category later on. Oh, we, we this is like we're just talking adventure bikes right now. OK, I like the, the 390 Adventure and I like the, the GS, right? Well, and they have the Versus 300 in here in the CB 500 X. I say the Versus 650 would be better. Versus yes. 650. Yeah, that was and, my and first think, bike. And mine, actually. It was, yes. Yeah. That, that was the, we, that was the uh, I go end over end on that yeah. bike. And then he gave it to me, and then I got to ride it with a little bit of a, a wait, tweak wait, like and a, like handlebars. the frame to an extent. <laughs> it like to turn left. It was like Zoolander. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, frame was a little tweaked, but. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think the Versus is an amazing motorcycle. Yeah. I think it's a very underrated, it's a great, great bike. Oh, yeah. And also the CB500X. I think that bike like, is Those two awesome. bikes will run forever, too. Yeah. Like, you can try to grenade them as best you, they're like the Toyota Hilux of motorcycles. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, like axe heads wear out faster than they do. Yeah. 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 All right, so now we're into the cruisers, and I'm not as familiar with cruisers, but- I'm not either, not, not my But there's jam. some on here that we're gonna, we're gonna objectively know okay. that this is what the internet says, There's the right? Rebel on there. 
The Rebel's on here twice. Oh. Yeah. So we have the V-Star 250, um, which I think falls right back. That's just too little. Yeah. Like, that's a great yeah. MSF bike, but that's small. Oh, yeah. Fantastic for do I want a cruiser. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fantastic test bike for do I want this riding position. Right. Yeah. And so, and then next we have the Honda Rebel 300 or the 500. 500. Definitely 500. the 500. Yeah. The 300 is just a little too little. And then, and then the Sportster 883. And this is probably the most recommended new bike out there. The Sportster That's 883. That's a heavy bike. It's it is. like 600 pounds, yeah. isn't it? It's, no. I think yeah. the 883 would be a good, like, second bike. Yes, it'd yep. be, yeah. And especially, and I think we're going to talk about this in a bit, because I'll bet you we have the same perspective on this too, but... Um, you may not, you may find you don't like cruisers. Yeah, it's, and that's the thing, right? Is that that's probably the most expensive bike on the list. Like that's a big investment for something that you may not like in six weeks. Yep. But if you are a Harley man, oh, yeah, through up. and through, here yep. is the Harley Street 500. Yes. But it's, Much it's, better it's still a little heavy. It's 500 pounds, but that way extra better option. 150 pounds is a big difference. Yes. It is, yeah. That is a significantly better first bike. It's more manageable. I'm really glad they made that bike. Oh, yeah. I, I really am. It's because the 883 is terrible. It's it's basically a 1200 that's sleeved down. Yeah. You know, so you're basically starting on a on a 1200 that has less power. And then the last one is the Indian Scout, which is that's not a bad little bike. Yeah, it's a cool <laughs> little bike. I like it. I like the color. It's like the red. It's kind of neat. So yeah. So I think with the yeah, the, I think the Rebel 500 is would probably I, be my yeah, top. I on think that, that would be. And, or the Harley Street 500. I think those are both. Or the Indian Scout. So those but three. What do those three have in common? They're more standard style, right? Yeah, they're way less. You're not like. A, you're not forward foot controls and mm-hmm. not, right. or at least not as. Um, I think the Scout is a little forward controlly, but yeah, the Sportster. I think the other ones, your feet are below you, which makes a big difference. Yeah, especially it, as a newer rider, where you're, hey, I don't have the balance yet. I well, don't and have, we use our feet. We actually oh, use yeah. our feet to ride the motorcycle. So when you have forward controls you're kind of taking away a control. Yep. Well, and the other thing is when you're stopping, a lot of new riders don't have that brilliant brake control yet. And if you're a little too hard on the brake and you get that heavy bike offset, oh. it's going to fall over. Yeah, because once it kind of hits that like tipping point, yeah, especially you when you're dealing with it. like a 600 pound Sportster, it get, and it's going. Yeah. It's going over, you know. All right, so now we get to bikes that are a little bit more near and dear to my heart. Naked bikes. Okay. This is the best category. Like, I'm just gonna say, this is the best category for a new rider. I right? agree. I, I think every new rider should start on a naked bike because it gives you. You can do everything. Yeah, it, it, it gives you time to decide the kind of riding you enjoy the most. Right. Yeah. So like, when I started riding, right, I, I started riding because I wanted to save money. I didn't want to go to a racetrack. I thought guys that drug their knees and elbows and shoulders and everything crazy. else around a racetrack were stupid. Not even just crazy, <laughs> but stupid. Like, and look oh, at man, you now. These guys are morons. <laughs> and yeah, now I'm that guy. Yeah. Right? So I don't know what that says about me, but you know. Adapt, adapt. But I had no idea that I wanted to do that. I had no idea I wanted to jump on an R6 and rally around a racetrack. I, I thought I was going to be more of a, a cafe racer or a bobber style guy. Mm-hmm. And you know, you jump on a, a standard bike and you can kind of get a feel for everything. Mm, yeah. You can do a little bit of adventure stuff if you have you know decent tires. You can do canyon carving. You can do let's commute around town. You can do the longer trips without. You can do track days with them. Yeah. I see people doing track days on them. The first bike on the list is the Duke 390. That is. I know that's near and dear to your heart. Yeah, I do. Well, we have an <laughs> RC. We have the RC. But yeah. No, like the, the three, the Duke 390. We see them at track days all no, the time. My, my favorite bike on a track so far is you know naked upright. Yeah. You know, the empty. I still rally around the MT10. I'm faster on the MT10 than I am on my R6, which is not supposed to be the thing, and that's something I'm working on. Yeah, but. I think years ago, Motorcyclist Magazine did a thing where they tested super bikes against naked bikes, like the same equivalent back to back, and almost everyone was turning quicker lap times on the naked bikes. It's so yeah. much more comfortable. Yeah, and you can see better. You can better. ride all day. Yeah. And not yeah. You get don't 
don't get tired. It's nice. And they're giggle bikes. They are. They, yeah, and they yeah. wheelie better. But I mean, <laughs> I, I, now this is to say, I would not recommend an MT10 as a starter bike. No, no, no. But there is the, uh, there is, you have the, I can't read it. MTO3. The MTO3. And the Vitpillin 401, which the Vitpillin kind of falls into the retro thing. Yeah. I think that thing's super cool. If you're a rider that is in a dense urban area, right? You're downtown LA, you're downtown New York, something like that. MTO3, not a bad idea. Yeah. Because it's super narrow, upright, you can see over traffic, you're not gonna they get tired, good. super nimble, yep. pretty They look bite. really good. Um, if you're out west, if you're MTO seven, MTO seven, yeah, yeah, definitely, <laughs> yeah. Just the bigger roads, the bigger, faster roads, and I imagine like our New Zealand or in Australia riders, like the big open places. Yeah, an MTO three would be and screaming everywhere. Honestly, I think, yeah. you know, as far as new riders go, the MTO seven is probably the perfect new rider bike because you have enough power to get around a problem without so much power that you're gonna hurt yourself. And it you, looks good. It looks good, it sounds good. The, you know, it's that, that cross-plane motor, like, it's just such a beautiful Yeah, it's bike. a humdinger of a bike. We have a friend who runs the Yamaha Demo Days, rides around with the fleet trucks all summer, and she's like, oh, that, that MTO7 is my favorite motorcycle. Could you imagine if they released an SP version? I know, wouldn't that be great? That'd be fantastic. But on here, we also gotta give credit to the, uh, the Honda CB300 or the CB500. 500. The 500. 500. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the same thing we're talking about. Uh, on the list, <laughs> the Grom. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I think I put that in the TW200 category. That's in the, yeah, that's, that's in the... I want a pocket bike later in life because they look silly. Yeah, I see people who start with Groms and they develop the worst habits. Oh, yeah. Because you can get away with everything. <laughs> you can get away with everything, yeah. There's, there's no power, so you're not really going to hurt yourself. There's no brakes, so you're also not going to hurt yourself. Like, there's no inertia because there's no mass. Like, mm -hmm. you can get away with, it's basically like riding in a parking lot everywhere. Yeah, so like for inexperienced riders and why so many of our experienced rider friends buy them, is because of that. Right. Yep. You can just be an idiot on it and you're just like giggling and laughing the whole right. time because you're going seven miles an hour. And it's like riding mini bikes, right? Phenomenal yep. training tools, but it's also as close as we can get to like a foam ball pit for motorcycles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's great. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so, oh, and then Kawasaki, they have the Z400 and the Z650. Zs are great bikes. Yeah. I really like them yeah. too. I, and I think 400, like I think Kawasaki did a good job with that 400. Mm -hmm. It's a little peppier than... It's got some more torque. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's, it's a little more usable, but I would still think like for most people, I think the 600 is a yeah. little bit better bike. Um, the MTO3 is on here and then the SV650. I think Those everybody things. has to race an SV650 for some time in their riding career. I avoided <laughs> I did not. Yeah, I mean, it's a phenomenal bike. It's been around for 20 years unchanged for a reason. Like, yeah. it's really hard to go wrong with that bike. See, I would actually kind of steer people away from the SV650 yeah. because I think compared to the competition, it's dated. It doesn't, oh, yeah, no. have, oh, yeah. it doesn't have some of the creature comforts and the functionality of some of the more modern brethren in that bike. So I think if, if on this but list... But on that list, if, if I had to... If I had to choose and, you know, some of the other choices weren't available, I would choose that over, you know, a 300cc. Yes. Well, oh yeah, all day. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the Z650 would probably be my first choice on this list. MTO7 um, all day. Yeah. The, or the MTO7. Yeah, I think between those two, they're really cool bikes. Throw some heated grips on there, ride around all year. Yeah. Well, and now, so, and this is really cool. This is a new category that I didn't think they were actually logging for, but they're, they're retro bikes. And I think Ooh. retro bikes are awesome because they're naked bikes that look a little, if you're like kind of the, I like my red wings and my unwashed denim jeans, like the retro bikes are like super. Like the XSRs. 
Yeah, yeah, like the XSR, and actually I think the Vit Pillin belongs on that. I Beautiful think that light. Vit Pillin is mm -hmm. so cool, or the Svart Pillin, yeah. same difference. Um, really fantastic. So they have like the CB3, the CB350, it looks like it just rolled out of the 70s. Yep. Yep. The TU250, they use these for basic rider yep. courses. Mm -hmm. It's a little too small, I think. Yeah. I think so. Ducati Scrambler. Those are actually, I was, mm. so we had a student yesterday on a Ducati Scrambler. Um, I was kind of impressed by that bike. I think yeah. it might be a little on the big side. We're getting no, into the higher horsepower range, not really. are we? Not really. Like it, that was, it's pretty it tame. looked like a very manageable bike. Yeah. I haven't ridden one. So take that with a grain of salt. But from, <laughs> from what I was seeing uh, from a newer rider, like pretty manageable. But they have the uh, Yamaha SR400 on here, which yeah. I think that thing is really cool. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's a cool little bike. Pretty bikes. And then the Trident 660, which I wasn't as familiar with this bike. Um, it's a cool little triple that looks like a, a 19, 1960s Triumph. Bike. Speaking of 660s, one of the bikes that should have been on the last category is the Tuono 660. Yeah, that's a bigger bike. That's a lot more power, but though. But it's also an expensive bike because it's an Aprilia. It's, I think it's arguably one of the prettiest bikes you can buy right now. It's also yeah. got really good electronics, especially mm -hmm. for a newer rider. And it's it under 400 pounds, which blows me away. Yeah. Like, yeah. that 660 like, is... It's got a peppy engine, but it's... Peppy in the same kind of sense that the R7 and MT-07 Can you is. power mode it down a little bit? Because mm -hmm. I think it's close mm -hmm. to, isn't it like 100 horsepower oh, it's on that? The dash on that thing, you can do um, up and down on engine braking, your TC up and down, um, ABS up and down, the engine mapping up, like everything. So it it's also about complex. double the price of most of these. Yes, True. <laughs> and because it's an Aprilia, it can only be worked on by certain people. Mm. You have to be careful with that. So it's not that accessible. So not the, not the, the most friendly beginner bike. Yeah. But in terms of if you have the money, buy once, cry once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, pretty. I love how they look. Those 660s, mm -hmm. I think, are so good looking. That bike will be one of those bikes that you know you, you buy it once. It duck. It, it can do everything, and it you'll never outgrow it. Yeah. I think um, um, Zach just did the daily rider on a 660. Yeah. I think recently with a with two colored different colored wheels. Mm -hmm. it looked yeah. good. It looked good. All right, and then the last class is the sport class. Um, no. I don't think anybody should start <laughs> off on a sport bike. I really don't. They're they're uncomfortable. They're too focused. Yep. Um, the closest I would say. You maybe. drop them, you're a, you're gonna break something. Yep. You know, and new riders are likely to drop them. Oh, everybody has the side tank dent from dropping and in a parking yeah, and lot and breaking a, yeah. the bodywork or the <laughs> levers. Levers. Yeah. Tough as a new rider to learn on a sport bike because. Yep. I mean, they're uncomfortable. They're, They're uncomfortable. You're kind of locked into one riding style. Yeah. Like you're and not if you gonna... decide you like touring, so I made this mistake. I started off, well, one of my first bikes was an FZR 600. And it was, and I wanted to tour. You're, you're effectively locking yourself into, I'm going to do this thing, even if I don't like it. Yeah. But I think as we wrap up by kind of our list of our best beginner bikes, I think, um, I think something that if you just love the look, of a certain style, mm -hmm. go with that. Like if your heart is set on a sport bike, I would rather you be on a naked bike, but if yeah. your heart is set on a sport bike, get a sport bike. There are some yep. sport bikes that are actually fairly comfortable. Right, like the, the Honda CB500, CBR500R, yep. CB yep. CBR500. 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 Yep. CBR and then you've got like the R7. The so R7. Yamaha did an amazing yeah. job yes. with the ergonomics on that. Like you can ride that pretty much all day as if it were an upright bike. Mm -hmm. You still got all the styling of the, the R6 and R1. Yep. Yeah, the new RC390 is more committed. The seating position is, is more aggressive than yeah. the older ones. The, Aprilia RS660 yeah. is also another, uh, you know, sport bike that's 
it's fairly comfortable. Very comfortable. Right? Yeah, it's a little more upright. But please, Ninja Four Hundred, I think, is a good one. That one's it a little. It is. It is. It's I, not as aggressive. Not as aggressive, but it, again, doesn't have the, the really the power or the the spunk to get you out of a situation. Yeah. Um, and again, anything that's fully fared, as a new rider, you will drop it. Mm -hmm. You will. You'll cry it's about a, it in a parking lot. You know, it'll be getting gas. You know, I noticed we say drop it, not crash it. Right, big yes. difference. There is a big difference. Yes, um, we are expected to drop our bikes, but you don't have to crash. Right. That's something I think people need to get in their heads, yes. no matter yeah. if they're on the street or on the track. You don't have to crash. I am so glad you said that because I think that's a great way to kind of like wrap up. You know, we always hear the the new rider advice. You got it. I got it. There are those who have and those, and those who will. will. Yep. And no. I think that's crap. Absolutely you not. You do not have to crash. You don't have to crash. All right, guys, so thank you so much for tuning in. This is our first one. Um, if you liked it, you know, let us know. If you have an idea for a name, let us know. Uh, we hope to continue doing these like throughout the winter. We're, you know, like, so I'm really glad that Alex and May came up with this idea. I think this was really fun. It's her. It was, it was May. It was May's <laughs> idea. So. I mean, people like to talk motorcycles, so why not record it? I know. It was funny. Like, you were just like on the speakerphone in your truck and made, like, made that little comment. And I was like, oh. Well, I think we did it enough times, too. Because, like, every race round, you know, yeah. after race round. As you're driving or yeah. driving yeah. back, you're, like, talking about it. Like, oh, and like, oh, what about this? And, yeah. All right. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. And yeah. we'll see you next time or hear you next time. This is audio. Bye.